The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk. Hello, my name's John Schaefer and welcome to The Wealth Show from CityWire. I'm here today with Tim Levine, CEO of Augmentum Fintech. Tim, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Well, Tim, last year was clearly a pretty tough year for VC companies. Could you run me through what happened in your portfolio and is there light at the end of the tunnel this year? Yeah, so I think you've got to classify the year as somewhat a year of two halves. I think tough for some VCs um, that probably overextended in the uh, in the heady times in mm. 21, 22. I think no one can deny that economically it was a pretty uh, challenging macro environment and geopolitical uh, dynamic didn't help. High inflation, higher interest rates, all of these uh, translated not just to VC-backed businesses, but you know, pretty much across the European economy as well. I think, you know, the underlying uh, trend in our portfolio was still one of growth. So if I look at our top 10 companies, Mm. which accounted for about 80% of the NAV, you had uh, north of 70% year-on-year growth. So if you think about what we do uh, and the types of businesses that we're backing, early-stage, high-potential, high-growth fintechs across Europe, we are looking for those businesses that are truly being disruptive. And those that really do hit the mark um, can grow despite the uh, inevitable headwinds that, uh, that comes across it. So I think when we talk about VC, what was tough for the market was the capital-raising environment rather than the underlying performance of many uh, portfolio companies. Sure. I mean, you're you're painting a relatively rosy picture of the fund considering the environment, but the market's probably a bit negative. Um, You know, you're you're running at a 34% discount at the moment. What's your response to that? Yeah, I think uh, one thing I can't control um, is, you know, the discount in in the prevailing market. I think sentiment towards growth per se um, has been challenging over the past 12 to 18 months. Um, I think we're somewhat beholden to that. I think what you have to do is uh, try and kind of cut through that. Venture is that long-term asset class. And I think if you kind of deliver that long-term performance, then, you know, ultimately that is the way to kind of bridge that uh, discount gap. I think historically, Mm. at the top of the market, we're trading at one of the highest premiums in the market, north of 40%. And as such, we find ourselves in an environment where, you know, we see peers trading at, you know, 60, 70% discount in some parts and, you know, ourselves, you know, at a frustrating 30%. So I think if you asked our brokers, they say you're trading at a, you know, smaller discount than others, mm. but it's still kind of a frustrating number. You don't want to be the best of a bad bunch. You do want to be able to cut through that. But it is hard in the current environment to cut through that uh, sentiment. Sure. And I mean, this is the first real test in a way for a fund like yourselves. This is the first time that you've really experienced true inflationary environment. We have, but we also have, we listed in 2018. So we've had to navigate uh, the very significant headwinds of COVID as well. So, you know, it's fair to say that it hasn't been a straightforward, plain sailing environment. There's definitely been uh, peaks and troughs. I mean, I think for us, you know, the proof in the pudding for both ourselves and our shareholders will be that long-term track record. Are we delivering that long-term consistent growth, delivering realizations above 
the holding NAVs. That's where I think there is a lot of investor skepticism across the asset class, not just in the listed markets, uh, is when it comes to valuation and really understanding, can I stand behind those valuations? Uh, and ultimately, it's up to, up to us to be able to prove those out over the uh, medium and long term. I wanted to go through some of the peaks and troughs, so to speak, in the portfolio. Sure. Um, You've had some relatively hefty losses in, in some of your portfolio companies. Um, maybe I could draw an example of uh, Grover. Is that how you say it correctly? Grover, uh, yeah. Grover, yeah. Um, and that's a, a tech rental platform that seemed to have losses of around 2.7 million. Could you maybe go into to what happened there? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's it's a little bit dangerous to go into too many specifics of individual portfolio Agreed, companies because yeah. you've got to look across the portfolio. and. If a company is being written up or written down, it doesn't necessarily mean that that company is outperforming or mm. underperforming. When it comes to your valuations, what you're doing is looking uh, to the public markets at a basket of potential comparables and seeing how they're trading. And I think one of the criticisms of private equity and venture capital was that it wasn't reflecting uh, the public markets. And I think it's really important that you do bring that into the valuation equation. So you might well have a business performing very well, but the peers that you're benchmarking it to in the public markets have struggled. And as such, you'll have a write down. So I think when you go asset by asset, um, it's quite hard to say, you know, is that written down or written up because of exceptional performance or underperformance? Fine. In Grover's case, actually, the business continues to grow. Um, you know, the key KPIs continue to move in the right directions. But, um, you know, but yeah, comparables. I mean, I, 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 as you're saying there, I mean, it, fundamentally, it doesn't really matter until someone buys the business or IPOs. It's, it, it's difficult to, you know, look at, look at these valuation figures and say, this is great or this is terrible, really. I mean, regulators have, have really been drilling down on this a little bit, as, as, as you've sort of um, suggested with valuations. So the, both the SEC in the States and the FCA in the UK have been scrutinizing private equity valuations. Do, do you think they're fair to do so? Yeah, I think there is not a one-size-fits-all. Uh, I think the devil very much is in the detail. And I think we've been really conscious um, to have much more transparency with our valuations. And I think when you look at how our valuations have tracked, and just to give you a sense, mm. in the peak of the market in the middle of 21, those high-growth listed fintech companies were trading on a forward revenue multiple north of 20, so unprecedented levels. And if you looked at the augmented forward revenue multiples growing north of 100% at that point, so growing at about 2 to 2.5x two the listed, we're trading at somewhere between 5 and 6. And I think where we stand now with a portfolio growing uh, on average north of 70%, still well below um, you know, that global listed fintech index, which grew on average sub 10%, where our business is north of 70. So I think it is important to you know, try and compare um, with the listed markets. And I think you know, it's dangerous when regulators try and be overly prescriptive when it comes to valuation, because you know, there are very different approaches and KPIs mm. and methodologies that you need to use but for different types of companies. Bit, bit conscious that you know the asset management industry is pushing private markets onto retail yeah. investors so so they're, they're quite conscious about it i think i think that's right and i think it's you know up to those businesses that operate in the listed uh, space to have that transparency and what mm. i would want to know as a investor is how fast are your companies growing 
what is uh, the forward revenue multiple um, as an average for your top five, for your top 10, uh, and have a bit of an understanding of those gross margins. And I think if you can get a better sense of the underlying performance, you can attribute you know, a reasonable proxy using data over the last 20 years to give you a reasonable range to make you comfortable or not uh, in your investment choice. Let's talk about your, your big exit of, of last year, Cushion. Um, so that's a uh, pensions platform. Um, why did you invest in that business in, in the first place? And, and do you think you got, you got a good deal there? Well, look, I think the, um, the whole uh, pensions industry is ripe for disruption. Um, it should come as no surprise that we're quite excited by the opportunities. We think it's an industry that hasn't been um, overrun with digitization. Mm. We think a lot of incumbents have you know, been challenged with the digital transformation that their businesses need to go through. The advent of workplace pensions, uh, kind of post 2018, has become a significant market, and we felt there was a significant opportunity. And I think uh, Cushion were really tackling that auto enrollment workplace pension opportunity with a digital first proposition. So we felt big market opportunity, and that's really our job to identify those trends and then identify those companies that are really looking like they've got a good opportunity to be one of the key disruptors and ultimately one of the winners. We only held that investment for about a year and a half, so very mm. much uh, shorter than our typical hold period of you know five to seven years. Um, so that was a pretty pretty good investment on that. Well, basis. it was a great RRR, yeah. so internal rate of return north of sixty yeah. percent. Um, you know, we invested initially five million, put some more money in, delivered north of twenty-two million. The exit opportunity came much earlier. Uh, right. I think when you have a high-performing asset and a strategic comes in and says, "I really like what they're building from a tech point of view." and that's a strategic opportunity where we want to capitalize, then sometimes uh, you know, these offers do come in. And I think that's one of the beauties of the industry that we operate in. We have a large pool uh, of traditional incumbents that have hugely struggled with digital transformation, mm. and increasingly they are looking at the next generation innovative platforms to see whether they can you know, become investors or ultimately acquire those businesses. And I think Cushion was a really good example of that. Yeah. And, you know, when no, all I things are sort of NatWest saw it as a bit of a sandbox, really, for, 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 that, for that element of Yeah, its, clearly uh, a, you know, a strong strategic rationale for what they're looking to do. Yeah. Um, a platform that was already operating at some scale, uh, tied up with uh, you know, clearly what NatWest were looking to do. Um, and you know, they put an offer on the table that the company felt was you know, good value yeah. for shareholders at the time. And I think you've got to look really kind of objectively as and when these opportunities come in, um, you know, try and remove the emotion from the equation and say, yes, we're expecting to hold this for a little bit longer, but ultimately uh, it's the right time uh, and the right price to, uh, to exit the business. So you've got quite a history of investing in the wealth and asset management space when it comes to tech. I mean, uh, examples are the likes of Interactive Investor, which was sold out to, to Aberdeen. Why do you like fintechs in that sector? Well, I've got a personal bias to that. I mean, we've got a pretty broad portfolio across a number of subsectors within financial services. I think the challenge is it is an industry that has really struggled to digitally transform, but is a huge market opportunity, both in asset and wealth management. Um, you know, we think it remains pretty inefficient. We think that consumers uh, and businesses alike aren't getting uh, great digital solutions. They aren't being uh, priced. Uh, at the level that we think there is. And, and there is a significant opportunity ahead of us over the next five to 10 years. But these are hard businesses to build. Um, I mean, we've looked at hundreds uh, of wealth tech, asset tech uh, businesses. But if you can find the right ones, 
then, you know, as has been proven with our exits to Interactive Investor, uh, I mean, VAR uh, Aberdeen and obviously Cushion to Nat West, um, you know, they are really attractive assets to acquire. Um, and ultimately, the assets, if you can get to scale, are really sticky as well. And that's a really important part. And that's one of the challenges that I think challenges have had with incumbents is to build that minimum scale when it comes to size of assets. So I think for us, it remains an area of significant innovation. Um, over the next five years, I think you're going to see tens of really exciting businesses cut through in that space. And hopefully, we'll have one or two more of them in our portfolio. Sure. And is that... Is that really where you're next looking to add in, in your portfolio still in that space? I mean, you can never be too prescriptive because we've got a team that has different yeah. disciplines and different capabilities and areas of expertise. I think for me, it's an area of real, uh, you know, really significant focus. Mm. Uh, I think the intersection of uh, wealth management and what's coming down the pipe in AI is one to really look at. Uh, and I think we're going to see a huge amount of innovation over the next two to three years in that space. Maybe you could give an example. I mean, do you think just automation in wealth management is just not there yet? I mean, we, we had, I think there was a bit of a hype over robo-advisors, yep. for, for example. A couple of years ago, that was sort of the big threat to the wealth management industry. And it sort of is a bit of a damp squib, perhaps. Um, but maybe that could be sort of robo-advisor 2.0. That, is that maybe where, where you're thinking? I think that's right. I mean, I think if you look at the traditional wealth management industry, there is a lot of consolidation. There is a lot of cost pressure. There's a lot of margin pressure. And I think consumers are increasingly becoming more discerning uh, as to you know, who they deploy their yeah. money with. There's a much greater scrutiny on fees, as we've seen with the regulator as well. Uh, and I think there is a significant opportunity for new players to come in. I think the reason that robos didn't work, and we looked at that whole market very closely. In fact, I was one of the first 100 customers in Nutmeg many years ago, but I was an investor. And in the end, we, inve we invested in Interactive Investor because it was an established brand with assets, but we felt that it could really uh, disrupt the self-directed space. And therein you know, lied the opportunity where you had someone off a, off a base that we could build off rather than you know, from a zero base, which was Nutmeg's really big challenge. The cost of customer acquisition was really, uh, really, really high. But I think when it comes to AI, I think the challenges there in the short term are going to be, you know, how does a regulator mm -hmm. uh, get comfortable with AI giving advice? Do you, do you think um, a fintech, you know, the likes of uh, Nutmeg, for example, was brought up by JP Morgan, do you think you need the backing of a much larger traditional institution to really get it off the ground? You, you, you nodded to the high cost of customer acquisition there, and that, that's pr probably true for all of these, these companies. To a certain extent, I think the market has learned a lot over the last decade in terms of you know, the pitfalls of high cost customer acquisition and the, and the unit economics. Um, I think in some cases, you know, having that strong brand alongside will help you get to scale quicker. But ultimately, it is about building trust. Uh, and I think the data will tell you it takes much longer to build a trusted financial services brand than it does a you know, traditional um, next generation consumer brand. At the same time, I think the challenge we see with these large incumbents is their ability to uh, innovate quickly. So I think what they're looking for are those businesses that can get to that breakthrough. Uh, and can there be that you know, happy marriage in time where a large incumbent can you know, add customers? Mm. alongside, you know, world-class tech platform with, you know, a proof of concept at some scale where you can make one plus one equals three. So I think you will see more collaborations, more M&A in that space. But I do think there's a significant amount of room for new standalone players to come through, assuming they can solve the very challenging uh, issue of uh, cost-effective customer acquisition. 
What about areas of fintech that you would avoid? Any in sort of bubble territory, you think overbought, too much hype? Yeah, I mean, I think arguably AI is an area of uh, bubble. And I think you have to be very discerning. So when I talk about the opportunity in wealth and AI, it is about understanding, you know, where it can intersect. We see a lot of standalone AI propositions that, you know, proclaim they have a fintech angle and we are somewhat sceptical. So we're sitting there on the sidelines watching and learning. So you think it has to be very specific, just a a generic, we've got AI technology, just doesn't really play ball over here. It's it's a buzzword. There are always buzzwords. This blockchain was a buzzword a few years ago. Uh, I think tech cycle, fintech cycle, you know, tends to have these, uh, you know, troughs and, and peaks. We see it. If you're familiar with the Gartner hype cycle, you can see, you know, if I mapped it out for you now, I could tell you who's in the trough of despair, who's at the peak of the uh, uh, of, of the hype mm. cycle as well. So I think... So not, do, you, do you like to look in the trough of despair then? <laughs> not, re- not necessarily. What we have to do is be really careful not to be right too early because mm. these propositions can sometimes take a little bit uh, longer but also not to be right uh, too late uh, and pay uh, you know, the wrong price. And I think we see that a lot uh, in the tech space, that your entry price is absolutely critical in order to kind of deliver that long-term uh, return. So that is you know, the challenge, and that's something which you know, I talk about with our team uh, you know, on a weekly basis. Uh, yeah. Timing is really, really important and entry price. Where can we expect to see the exits this year in your portfolio? I mean, some of your companies are looking in a relatively strong position. You've got, you know, the likes of Tide, your top position is it's already profitable. Maybe there's a, an IPO potential or, or sale to an established lender, maybe. You can, you can never be overly prescriptive in terms of when you can see exits. I think if you'd have asked me this time last year, I would have expected there to be more M&A in the tech and fintech market. And that didn't really happen. I think there were a lot of good reasons for that, a lot of economic unpredictability uh, and headwinds, as we've talked about. But I do think we're going to see you know, in- increasingly more M&A, more consolidation, not just from large incumbents buying fintechs, but large fintechs uh, mm-hmm. you know, acquiring smaller uh, subscale fintechs yep. where they can acquire technology, they can acquire a few customers, uh, where those businesses are finding it harder in this environment to, uh, to fundraise as well. So not wishing to avoid the question, but I think, again, you know, it is hard to be overly prescriptive and it's a matter of timing as well. So would I want to, if someone came knocking on the door today for one of our portfolio companies, let's say, you know, Tide, I'd sit there and say, over the next two to three years, huge ambitions there, not just to continue to grow in the UK, but launching internationally. Mm. Fantastic growth uh, in India already for that business, launching in uh, continental Europe this year in two major markets as well. So I think there's a lot of growth to come there. And I think the danger is you can exit too soon. Sure. But at the same time, you're you're running at a pretty hefty discount and the odd exit in that portfolio um, wouldn't go amiss really to, to ease that surely. Yes, I mean, I think the, the danger is you exit for the wrong reasons. You exit because you want to you yeah. know, prove to the market um, that you can sell something at a premium to your holding valuation. I mean, our five exits to date have all been at or above the holding valuation. In fact, the average premium has been 30%. Okay. So I think we've demonstrated that the five exits, you know, we do look to exit north of, uh, of the holding value and, and often, you know, well north of that. But I am quite reluctant um, to, you know, leave what I would regard as, you know, significant future upside on the table if we still have strong conviction. And I think that really yep. is the beauty of the investment trust, 
where you shouldn't be under pressure to have that gun to your head. Sure. But at the same time, you're right to say that investors want to see track record, they want yeah. to see realizations, they want to have comfort on those underlying yeah. valuations. You have to strike that right balance. Uh, I mean, I, I would agree. You're, you're, you're not under a technical sort of pressure in terms of you haven't got redemption requests at, at your door, but you're under a sort of implied pressure with, with, a, with a discount there. I mean, are, th- are there any other things that you would, might Im- employ to close that discount with? Maybe some share buybacks? Yes, well, the PLC take the decision on uh, on the share buybacks, not not the manager. I think you know what the PLC have done both in twenty two and twenty three is has been to use um, you know residual cash sitting on the balance sheet to buy uh, to buy back uh, stock that uh, you know has become you know an overused uh, um, tool because it's one of the limited mm. tools that I think that many investment trusts have in their armory. Ultimately, you do it to one, you know, show confidence and underlying faith in the portfolio, and two, to try and uh, soak up some, uh, you know, residual stock in there to try and close that discount. I think what we've seen in the market is there has been a lot of buybacks, hasn't necessarily, uh, you know, bridged that discount, and so you have to kind of try and strike the right balance. But I think for us, as the manager, what I'm excited about is the opportunity over the you know, next two years in terms of European fintech opportunity, where there's still a huge amount of disruption to come. I think valuations are starting to revert uh, to the more recent historic norms. So we can look at 20 or the second half of 20 and 21 and the first half of 22 as a real anomaly. Uh, and I want to make sure that we can capitalize and leverage what I think is really strong expertise and capability and track record mm. to be able to kind of deliver those outsized returns to investors over time. Um- there's a, a, a real sort of love for digital banks in the portfolio. I mean, we, we've already mentioned uh, Tide, um, Zopa. Uh, why do you like that sector? But, and do you think they can really compete with the traditional banks? I think, you know, a couple of years ago, though, there was, there was a lot of sort of hype around some of the digital banks, like sort of Monzo, et cetera. But the UI on maybe the traditional players has got significantly better in, in the last couple of years. How, how do you speak to that? Yes, I think if you look at what's happened now over the last 10 years, it's quite clear who the big winners are going to be. And I think you mentioned the likes of Monzo, the likes of Tide, the likes of Zopa, um, who are all at real scale now, um, at profitability, um, have real penetration in the market, and there have been a number that have fallen by the wayside. Um, so I think you know these are established uh, brands that are really well loved by their underlying customers. So they have totally different net promoter scores. So the you know the score of how much your customers you know would recommend yep. you. When you look at some of these digital banks, we're talking 60, 70, 80 versus in negative territory for some of the traditional banks. There's a very different customer relationship. The other important point to make is you're right to say that uh, some of our traditional banks have uh, usable apps very nice front ends. Uh, What you see on the front end isn't always what you see Mm. in the back end. And I think many of our largest banks are still hugely struggling with the weight of the legacy infrastructure. And most of them have turned to B2B fintechs to help build the next generation of their infrastructure as well, because they have proved themselves that they can't uh, digitize that platform from within. But, but perhaps the, the retort on the other side is that some of the digital banks sort of back ends got worse. You know, the, the, the feeling that you could, you know, use a chat um, element and you'd get a real person speaking to you within a couple of minutes and then it's now been replaced by a chat bot or you might have to wait, 
you've several hours to get in contact with the, with a real person. You know, as, as you scale, things get cha- more challenging. Yeah, I think they do. And I think you can look at examples the likes of Revolut that's got tens of millions of customers. And I think with exceptional growth, mm. unprecedented growth, comes real challenges of scale. And it's up to those businesses to you know, try and find a way to navigate them. Fundamentally, use technology. Uh, and I think coming back to AI, what you probably don't realize and I don't probably realize is the majority of the time now um, when we have customer service requests, we are talking uh, to an AI bot much of which we might not understand. It's getting much, much better. Mm. And actually, one of our portfolio companies, I won't say which, has been you know, using AI as part of its customer service sure. solutions. And the feedback from customers from when they're interacting uh, with an AI bot versus a human is actually better without the customer knowing um, either. So I think for 80% of the queries, actually, what you're going to see is significantly improve AI interaction to solve customers' queries quicker. And of course, there are more complex queries. Yep. Uh, they're going to have to be used by a human. But I think to be able to kind of triage those is a really effective tool. And I think you're seeing those next generation fintechs really embrace and use these AI technologies far more effectively than perhaps some of the incumbents, which inevitably will catch up mm. in time. But you know, these neobanks, those that are scared, are are here to stay. And I think if you ask many of the large traditional banks, I bet they wish they'd bought some of them before they got to such scale, because I think that could have you know, been a marriage made in heaven if they'd done them four or five years ago. But there was a huge amount of skepticism back then. Some scary stuff for the future of work, potentially, there. Indeed. But, um, you, you, we touched on this earlier, but uh, you know, perhaps you were a little bit disappointed by the lack of M&A activity um, in, in the last year or two. Um, do you think that's going to pick up in the next 12 to 18 months? I think inevitably it has to. I think if we look at the amount of capital sitting on the sidelines, I think we're at almost an all-time high, if not an all-time high, when I look at private equity in terms of you know, yeah. how many hundreds of billions, maybe even a trillion of dry powder sitting on the sidelines. Um, at the same time, I continue to spend a lot of time with um, large incumbents, understanding some of their challenges and needs. and. You know, I think we see that they continue to struggle with the digital challenges that come their way. And you know, we know that they're spending a lot of time looking at uh, some of these next generation uh, fintechs to see can they be the solution to some of our problems. So ultimately, whether it's second half of this year or throughout 2025, I'd be surprised, being a betting man, I would say uh, that I think we'll see a fair few more M&A acquisitions in 24 and 25 than we saw in 23. Something I'd like to touch on is um, sort of the negative mood music around the, the UK market in general. How do you feel about that? So I think when we think about some of the initiatives, regulatory changes for the London Stock Exchange, I think these are net positives. The challenge we have is that you know, tweaking the edges, changing some of the regulations doesn't solve what I think is the demand issue. Mm. Um, I think we've seen a lot of capital, and we talked earlier about pension yep. fund uh, you know, money. We talk about auto-enrollment. But the vast majority of that capital moves overseas, in particular to the U.S. markets. A tiny percentage of that moves into the London public markets. And that's a real issue, um, yeah. both in the short term and medium term, which has been identified. And I think that is where we need to find the solution. So there is a real demand problem. Um, in the London markets, and, and that's and who, a source of great frustration to us all. Who's who's investing in, in Augmentum? 
Is it, is it mainly retail or is it institutional? Is it, is it hard to get the institutional market interested? So we have, you know, have had a really good, loyal uh, and varied base of shareholders. We've got a good amount of retail, the likes of, you know, Hargreaves, yeah. Interactive Investor, Asia Bell customers, um, you know, really giving them that democratized access to yeah. diversified fintech. A lot of the wealth managers uh, have been really strong supporters. Um, but the pension funds are largely absent. Uh, which is a source of, you know, again, great frustration for us. We do have um, the South Yorkshire Pension Fund who, you know, have been, um, I think, pretty forward thinking in their approach to, uh, to venture uh, and private equity. But, you know, if we look at what's coming down the pipe, there's a lot of government support for the Mansion House Compact, which is to unlock that pension yep. fund capital. But we need to see that accelerated. We can't wait until 2030. It's all well and good, these large pension funds saying we're going to commit a minimum of you know 5% to mm. private assets. But ultimately, if we wait until 2030, I think the game will be lost. So we Fine. need to see pace of change quicker. Uh, less talk, more action. Excellent. Well, Tim, on that note, I think we'll leave it there. Tim, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. The Scottish Mortgage Podcast Invest in Progress is back. Join the managers and their guests as they go behind the scenes of some of the most innovative companies of our time. Companies like Climeworks, who are pioneering technology to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Or Zobi, who are at the forefront of a new era of aviation developing electric air taxis. Or Aurora, who are building software so that trucks can drive themselves. Hear from the leaders of these exceptional businesses on their vision and what the world could look like if they succeed. Available now on all major platforms. Your capital is at risk.